0: Well, good morning again. My name is Sean, the lead pastor here. And we're continuing our trek through the book of Ecclesiastes this morning. You're welcome to turn there in your own Bibles. This is a little bit to the right of Psalms if you want to do that. Or if you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to use the Pew Bible there. It's found on page 520. And if you don't have a Bible at home, please take that Pew Bible. It's our gift to you. You're welcome to have that. It's also printed for you on page 10 in your bulletin, and there's a children's version on page 11. So you've got God's Word, many opportunities to have it there in front of you. And as you're turning there, um, I once saw uh, a man named Phil Riken, who's now the president of Wheaton College. Before that, he was a pastor in Philadelphia, and he gave a seminar on the relationship of art and some redemptive themes. I'm going to borrow from that in the introduction this morning, and I want to show you a painting this morning. This is called The Moneylender." and His Wife by Quentin Metzis. This painting comes from about 1500 A.D. And so it's from the city of Antwerp where the, where the painter is from. And a moneylender is kind of a precursor to a modern day banker. Each city had its own form of coinage. And so what you would do if you wanted to do commerce in that city, you would come and you would bring the coinage from your town and you would go to a moneylender and he would weigh out the actual valuable gold content or silver content and give you the equal amounts in current currency and what you're supposed to see here is he's working on scales there he's weighing out the coins and behind him the artist has put in all sorts of things that signal to us that he is part of the rising middle class at this point in europe you know it's they, they started to have this group of people the merchant class the middle class who were not the big landed gentry nor were they basically the glorified serfs. They were this new class and so he has all these trappings. He has those books which are very expensive. He has that pewter plate in the background. He's got fresh fruit right in front of it. Lower right hand corner he's got this crystal uh, jar with uh, silver outlines on it. It's very expensive. You notice right next to that is a little black piece of velvet that has a pile of pearls on it. Very valuable things. He's got these gold coins in front of him. And his wife next to him is reading a devotional book. If you could see it closer, that's actually the virgin with child. So you know it's a devotional book, perhaps even a Bible itself, depending upon the edition. But notice she has gone from her study of this devotion or God's word, whichever one it is, and where is she gazing now? What has captured her heart? What do you see longing in her eyes, right? She sees all that shiny stuff to her right. And there's a moral here in this painting. It demonstrates how money grabs our heart, how wealth, how things, shiny stuff just grabs us even we don't want it to, and it takes us away. And specifically in this painting, he's showing how it takes money and wealth grab our hearts and take us away from following after God himself. And I bring that up because this pastor philosopher in Ecclesiastes is going to show us the same thing. So far, he has spent four chapters outlining all the frustrations under the sun. And he asks the question over and over again, what's the point of all of this? What's the point of all of our toil? At the beginning of chapter 5, if you remember, if you weren't here, I'll tell you, he led us into worship, reminding us of the great difference between God and between, between us, and reminding us of how seriously God takes our worship and he ends in verse 7 with this very stark reminder it says god is the one you must fear not be afraid of but hold in awe revere respect so living in godly fear this authentic life of a worshipper before god forms the big overall context for what comes next, which is our passage. I want you to hold on to this idea of the fear of God as we look together at Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 8 through 20. Please follow along. <clears throat> if you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. For the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gained for a land in every way There is a grievous evil I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by an owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is a father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go." And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation, and sickness, and anger. Behold, I, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot." Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. Now this is God's word. Let's go together to God in prayer. Now, Gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for your word that is challenging to us that confronts us at the very center of our loves. And, Father, we ask that you would once again send your Spirit to open this text up to us that we may see more of your Son. (coughs) Confront us and change us by your truth yet again this day we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. And so we see in this text just some initial impressions here that the fear of God, it soothes your fears. It eases your problems, and it gives you joy. And that leads us to our theme for today. Here's where I hope we end up. It's this. We think it's like doing taxes, but the fear of God is really more like a relaxing vacation. And I want you to kind of curl your cur- nerves up a bit and kind of chuckle because the fear of God, like a vacation? Seriously? Well, let's hope we will get there together. Well, let's see. Let's jump right in verses 8 through 12 with this bittersweet symphony where we see that we fear God by not freaking out and by being content. He starts out right away telling us we're going to see oppression everywhere. We could translate this injury, fraud, extortion. We're going to see this happening to the destitute and to the needy. We're going to see also, he says, a total perverting of justice and righteousness. And he says, when you see that, Don't be dumbfounded that it's there. We could add to that, you know, believe your theology of the sinfulness of people, of what we in the Presbyterian church like to call total depravity. It's not just that individuals are sinful, but that systems created by those individuals are also sinful. The phrase, oppression of the poor, refers to what we would call social injustice. And then the words justice and equity denied refer to what we would say legal injustice. So he's hitting the whole spectrum here, and he looks at this system of bureaucracy, he looks at this system of corruption, and he says that system is the main oppressor because that entire system looks out for itself. But when you see it, don't freak out. See, this is more than just an anti-government rant at this point. He's not, you know, getting all geared up to establish the Occupied Jerusalem movement. Instead, he's trying to get us to understand the way life is. We've been in worship in verses 1 through 7, and now we step into the world out of worship, and we see that the world still doesn't work. Under the sun didn't somehow transform itself into heaven on earth just because we met God in the sanctuary. We leave worship and go out into life as it is, but see, we see it with new eyes because we've been in worship. See, what happens is there tends to be two different types of worshipers, and we've got them in this room too. One side tends to default to, they really emphasize and react to seeing the idea of sin as a violation of loving God, as a violation of something, let's call it vertical. The other side tends to react to and focus on seeing sin as a violation of something with other people, more horizontal. And the Bible teaches both of those. What I'm talking about is kind of where we tend to land. And we see them here. The first group of people tends to be very much aware of what we would call legal injustice. And so that phrase, justice and equity denied, really gets their ire up. These are people who tend to be a little bit more conservative. They they really focus on individual rights, and they see things as as responsibility. And so their default, because they go to this way, their default that they have to be careful of is to be like, well, yeah, but, I mean, you know, God's kind of getting them for what they did. I mean, I want to say they deserve it, but I don't know how to get out of this sentence either. You know, so, (laughs) right? The other side, they, they tend to focus more on violations of, of brotherhood or sisterhood, and so they tend to be very much on social injustice, we would call it today. So this phrase, oppression of the poor, man, they're all over that one. They get that one. And they tend to default to, yeah, I mean, sure, God cares, but really we should care. We should be involved in this. And here's the reason I bring bring it up because he's covering both swaths of the worshiping community let's call them conservatives and progressives and he's saying both of them tend to think in terms of the sky is falling and the church is failing when they see the sin that really irks them and so Solomon comes along and he says sir y'all chill don't freak out when you see that stuff it's not going to go away that's the way life under the sun is not Oh, ignore that. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, don't be undone by these injustices and doubt the character and power of God because of it. Don't do that. He's reminding them in verses 8 and 9 that no government under the sun can ensure justice and righteousness because it's made up of people just like us. Insecure, riddled with envy, which he covered in chapter 4. And now what he's covering here, people who are in love with money. And we know, don't we, the world under the sun loves it some money, doesn't it? I mean, living in that love instead of living in the fear of God that he established is what causes all the injustice. I know that sounds a lot like preacherly hyperbole, doesn't it? It's one of those things that you get to say from a pulpit and no one challenges you on. But let me, but let me tell you, that's, that's not just preacher talk. Okay? The atheist philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche, absolutely no friend of Christianity, he looked at his culture and here's how he put it. He says this, he says, What induces one man to use false weights, another to set his house on fire after having insured it for more than its value, while three-fourths of our upper classes indulge in legalized fraud? What gives rise to all this? They are urged on day and night by a terrible longing and love for these heaps of gold. What once was done for the love of God is now done for the love of money. But Ecclesiastes comes along and encounter that says, well, worshipers fear God. Under the sun, we may love money, but worshipers fear God. And so this pastor philosopher goes right after that love in verse 10. Look with me at verse 10. It says this, it "Says he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. See, for a person trying to squeeze satisfaction out of money, it doesn't matter how big the paycheck is because that money can't love you back. Even worse, in verse 11, he says, as a person makes more money, more people show up to take it, either moochers or officials or both. They're just, why, why am I feeding you? Who are you again? Why are you eating here? See, the point is, under the sun, the person who gets the money doesn't get to enjoy it. They just get to see it go by, he says. Here's how we put this for the boys and girls. Boys and girls who are still here, I know you don't think about money like this, so I want to make sure you're tracking with me. Let's look at your page 11, verses 10 through 12. It says this, If we love money, we will never be happy with money, no matter how much we have. That's the frustration of this life. The more money you make, the more people show up to take it. You don't really get to enjoy it. Someone who works hard, regardless of how much they have, sleeps great. A rich man is kept awake at night. Hey okay, boys and girls, were you, were you a little cranky this week? You can be honest. My, my boys and girls were a little cranky this week. Okay, you know, Because the government done messed up our sleep schedule last Sunday, right? And so it's been messed, we've been messed up all week. But see, sleep can affect your whole life, can't it, boys and girls? When your sleep is messed up, your life is messed up. And what this person is telling us here is that sleeping well is like a picture of life. When you sleep well, you're having a happy life. Those who respect and worship God, he's telling us, even when they're poor, can be happy. But those who love money, even if they have a lot of it, often are not happy. When you fear God, he loves you back. Your money can't do that. You know the term fat cats? Usually it comes up in political discourse, right? Okay, this means yes, this means no. We heard the, we heard the term fat cats, right? It's usually referring to people, you know, who have money and power, right? Uh, Anyway, so the word fat cat came around because it used to be, before the rise of the middle class, like in that painting, you had two types of people. You had the haves and the have-nots, those who had land and those who didn't. And the people who had land didn't have to sweat away every single calorie they ate to stay alive, and so they were fat. So it used to be that a fat person and a rich person were synonyms, In our day and age Skinny and and rich go together, but it used to be fat and rich went together. And so what he's showing here is he's saying this. He says, the subsistence worker, who even if he goes to sleep hungry, still sleeps. Whereas the rich, satisfied man goes to bed with a belly full and he still can't sleep because he's worried about his life. Because his money can't satisfy him. We quoted Nietzsche, we'll quote another philosopher, Mick Jagger. He can't get no satisfaction. See, so we fear God by not freaking out and by being content or we live in this bittersweet symphony of life. Next, verses 13 through 17, we see we got more money, we got more problems. Where we fear God by not having an idol of money. See, what's really going on here with all this satisfaction from money stuff, his inability to sleep, is he has an idol of money money. Now, don't think about National Geographic and people dancing half naked around a totem. Okay, that's not idolatry. That, that might be idolatry, but that's not what we're talking about here. Okay, idolatry here is when we take something that's good, usually a gift, something we like, and it becomes something we now have to have. We can't live without. We must have it. Instead of, oh, this is nice, it becomes, I have to have it. Your life is organized around it. Here's how, he, here's how he puts it. Look at me at verses 13 and 14. He says this. He says, There's a grievous evil that I've seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. See, this money lover has worshipped his money. He's hoarded it. He's protected it. And he said it's harmful to him. How was it harmful to them? Let me, let me introduce you to a phrase, okay? Gen Xers, millennials, we're, we're going to teach everybody else a phrase from our, from our generations. In the dating world, they had this phrase called having someone on the hook. And what it means is that there's this person out there where you know they're kind of into you. You're not really into them, but they're better than being alone on Friday night. So you give them just enough attention, just enough flirting, just enough interaction so that they will think you might possibly be interested. You've got them on the hook. So when you need them, you pull them in and use them, right? That's what he's saying here idols do to us. They tantalize us with hints and promises of a payoff, but they never actually satisfy our hearts. They keep us on the hook. They make us their servants. We give our lives to them. We toil for them, and it frustrates us to no end. This is why Jesus, I believe, talks about The idolatry of money far more than he talks about immorality or sex. Because greed specifically and idolatry in general ruins our life. It doesn't satisfy us. We see it in this text. Starting in verse 14, we see the generational pain this idol causes. This money lover loses it all. He has nothing to pass on. He was born penniless and he dies penniless leaving nothing to the next generation. Which again is a big theme in Ecclesiastes. If you've been here from the beginning, remember the idea of a, of a remembrance, of a memorial? Remember the pile of rocks? All over the Old Testament there's this thing where God says, hey, something special happened here, make a pile of rocks. That way generations from now when you walk by and your kids say, hey, what's with the pile of rocks? You can tell them the great story that God did. And so there, there became this idea of a memorial meant to have a significant life, one that people would tell your story. Because you were important. You mattered. And now this man has lost it. The same drive to count for something, to be remembered, to, to be story worthy. This rich person has given their life to amassing this wealth, to serving this idol, because it'll make me significant. And now they've lost it. They have nothing for the next generation. And it, it, the text has those terrible words there is no remembrance, it's all worthless. And as the end of verse 16 asks, what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? It's nothing. Here's how I put it for the boys and girls. Boys and girls, let's look at your verses 13 through 16 there on page 11. It says this, it makes me sick to see a rich man worrying over his money only to lose it in a bad business. He then has nothing to pass on to his kids. He was naked and owned nothing when he was born and in spite of a life of hard work, he will leave this world naked and owning nothing. It makes me sick to think that he worked so hard all his life for nothing. Boys and girls, have you ever messed up really bad and someone made fun of you for it? Probably like a sister or a brother. Well, I want you to see here the Bible's not making fun. The Bible is not rejoicing that this person lost everything. King Solomon here, who probably wrote this, he's sad for the people who've worked so hard and have nothing at this point because God cares about people. And he wants them to be happy. You know, and for all of us, notice how throughout this passage we just read, the, the repeated idea of working hard or toil is there that we all toil under the sun in order to matter. We want to be remembered. We want to be significant. We want our lives to matter. The idol of money, the idol of wealth tells us over and over again, if you give me your life, if you jump through my hoops, I will make you important. I'll make you feel like you matter. I will give you significance. But it's a lie. Look at verse 17. It says, all his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation, and sickness, and anger. Now, eating was a joyful event. You rarely ate alone, or even even if you were in grief, you didn't eat alone. You You don't have to be a Hebrew scholar to know that darkness, vexation, sickness, and anger are bad stuff you don't want, right? But for the money lender and for the significant seeker, they do eat alone. They do eat in darkness, in vexation, irritability, being bothered. Anger. He was alone in the darkness, not rejoicing, brooding over his horde, making sure it's okay. He's so vexed. He's so angry. He's sick, the text tells us, that harm might come to his pile. I would challenge you to look into your heart right now. What causes you those feelings? What is it that you worry about? What is it that you get really angry if it gets messed with? You see, Christians and non-Christians alike, we're all susceptible to idols of significance. Especially in a culture like ours that tells us, right, go find your purpose. Be significant. Have meaning. Live on purpose. Your worth comes through what you accomplish. Do something important with your life. Don't waste your life. And it creates this intense, constant pressure to perform, doesn't it? To make sure that you're doing it, man. See, now in the Christian narrative, we, we can kind of help with that because there's this absolute connection between God's purposes in the world and what He intends to happen and how He orchestrates and brings people on board to accomplish those purposes. And so when you're walking in the fear of the Lord, you are doing something incredibly significant and important. You're accomplishing His will. But if you're not a Christian, And if you're operating under this narrative that God probably doesn't even exist, or if He does, He doesn't really care, how do you anchor your life in anything substantial? I mean, if there's nothing beyond this material world, if eventually the sun is just going to supernova, it's going to burn up the inner planets, and so everything humanity ever accomplishes will be destroyed, no one's ever going to remember anything we ever did as a species or as an individual. How are you any better than the person in verse 13 through 16? Atheist philosophers have wrestled with this question because it's really hard to have like ethics and values unless you have something substantial to ground them in. And one of the best answers they've come up with is summed up really well by a guy named Luke Ferry. You can look this up in his book. It's called A Brief History of Thought. He says this, serve the poor, go out and... Help out and volunteer. Do important things, but don't kid yourself that it has any ultimate meaning or significance. You are doing it only for yourself because only you matter in the end. Now, he's being intellectually consistent. I'll give him that. But it sounds incredibly unfulfilling, doesn't it? It puts you right back into toiling for significance, trying to prove you matter from something under the sun. You're backed with what the Bible calls seeking an idol. See, idols can't satisfy you. They can't bring you that significance you're looking for. But what do they do? They, They keep us on the hook, tempting us to keep engaging in more toil, and perhaps this will make me important. Perhaps this will make me feel like I matter. But you end up with stress, depression, anger, and nothing to show for it. But there's something better available. We see it in verses 18 through 20, where you stand in the place where you live by fearing God in everyday joy. Look with me at verses 18 through 20. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and to drink and to find enjoyment and all the toil with which one toils under the sun, the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. Notice, toil is all over the place in these verses too, but in verse 18 we're told that all this toil is literally good and beautiful. How is toil beautiful? Because unlike the idols that say toil for me and then I'll bless you, but they never actually do, God gives us the blessing as we toil. It's not toil and then receive, it's receive as you toil. Verse 18 and 19 says God has given. Verse 19 says it's the gift of God. The idol of money makes promises to us if we toil enough. God gives in the toil, not after. He gives us what we cannot grasp for ourselves. He gives us happiness. He gives us joy. He gives us contentment right where we are in spite of all that junk under the sun. It sounds so simple that we read it as very simplistic and naive and out of touch, don't we? I wish I could just choose to be happy It'd be nice, right? But see, the fear of God creates a life of contentment is what he says that God gives us what we toil after. Remember back in verse 6, last week when we were in worship, he asked this question about us not being authentic. He said, this is, why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? It's actually not destroy, but it's actually literally to make frustrating. And it was a warning that God will frustrate you you live as a hypocrite before him. He's talking to his worshipers. Now here's the opposite. That was the stick. Here's the carrot. The satisfaction and significance that our hearts seek in idolatry is given by God as a gift. He will give you contentment. He will give you joy in your everyday toil. It's it's just too simple, isn't it? It's got to be more complicated than that. Our hearts just rejected it immediately. It can't be that simple. i got to do more. But God says, no, eat up and drink down the simple everyday pleasures of life as you toil under the sun. As you encounter injustices that grate on you, as you worry for the future, the God-fearer knows that joy comes from not seeking after all those things, but resting in the grace and care of God himself. See, rather than always craving more, we're invited to be happy. We're invited to be happy. What an invitation. In whatever life throws at us, because we're satisfied with God, He's given us joy. And as the chapter ends, He gives us a glimpse of this person for whom life passes in joy. Not because it's short and meaningless, but because by the grace of God, He finds it utterly absorbing. Look again at verse 20. Notice what he says there. He says, For he will not much remember the days of his life, because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. Isn't that a great phrase? He keeps you occupied with joy in his heart. So as she was retiring from her daily column in the late 90s, Ann Landers asked her readers to submit different things she had said over the years that were meaningful to them. And one of the things that she said has now, 30 years later, become a meme. Who knew? And Landers. And it's this, living rent-free in your head. There are so many buzz-free feed lists and TikToks out there titled, What Lives Rent-Free in Your Head? It means, what do you involuntarily brood over? What do you resent? What can you not stop being bothered by? To use the language of verse 8, be amazed at. And let me ask you this. What lives in your heart rent free? What occupies your inner life? What takes up your bandwidth, as the consultants would say? What makes your days longer, your toil insufferable? See, verse 20 has the audacity to say that God can give you joy that lives rent free in your heart if you'll let Him. How dare He! unless it's true. We're not done with the painting. I want to take you back to the painting to help you see this. So here we have again the moneylender and his wife and notice she is taking her eyes off the devotional book and she, or the Bible, whatever it is, and she's looking at the money. But the painter, Quint, Quentin Metzis, is, is a Christian and he put himself in the painting. So I'm going to zoom in on the little mirror thing there. If you see that little face in there, that's the painter himself. Now, if you can see it or not, he's reaching out his hand. And what's he reaching out his hand to grasp there? You may see it? In the face of witnessing this money alluring people away from devotion to God, he reaches out and he grabs the cross. Do you see it? This is not a, this is not a photograph. He made up that architectural feature to look like a cross. You get that, right? He's reaching out for the cross, and what is he telling us here? In the midst of all this alluring wealth and money, he's grasping onto the redemption offered by Jesus. This, This artist shows us what the book of Ecclesiastes has told us, that idols can't be removed. They have to be replaced. You let go of them, and you grasp onto something more beautiful, like what verse 18 tells us. We are invited to reach out to the cross where Jesus gave His life for our idolatry. We're invited to hold on to Jesus and find satisfaction in Him. Sticking with the picture of money, I want very briefly to look at 2 Corinthians 8-9. says this, it says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that you by His poverty might become rich. In the voluntary poverty of Jesus, we become rich, it says. That Jesus gave up His treasure in heaven so that He could come and make us His treasure. In the language of today, Jesus made Himself insignificant to come and make us significant. That's the gospel. And you can grasp it even in this moment. You can be amazed again or maybe for the first time by the truth that we're so messed up We're so damaged that it took the death of Jesus to fix us. But we're so loved and adored and valued that he died voluntarily to do it. And so when we embrace him, he gives us significance and joy to live in our hearts rent free. What all the idols around you promise but never deliver, Jesus earned, and he gives it to you by grace. That's the gospel. It's for you. You can have joy and satisfaction in your life, even today. That's what comes from fearing God. So forget everything you think you know about religion, everything you've called Christianity, and simply place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone as he's offered in the gospel. Grasp onto him, and he will hold onto you and bring you joy and contentment. And don't wait. Do it now. Let's pray together. My gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, it's too simple. Nothing in our life is free. And so when we hear your gracious offer, we just doubt it, Lord. Would you help our unbelief? Would you give us, Lord, the strength? to grasp on to the beauty of Jesus as he's offered in this text. We pray, Lord, that you would change us by this truth, that we would walk in the fear of you, the freedom to have joy in the junk of life instead of being undone by it. set us free in your gospel yet again, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.